Um, hey, if you would be turning it to uh, Genesis chapter 12, we'll be in verses 1 through 9 this morning. And I do want to welcome uh, our kindergartners through second graders who are in here with us this morning. This is actually a, a good passage to have them in here and, and not see them as a distraction, but see them as a gift from the Lord uh, in his faithful promise to continue uh, what, what he said he would do, that he would grant to his people children. It's good to see Caleb here as they've made it in. Hey, Caleb, it's good to see you not in the hospital. Uh, and so um, uh, what a gift it is to be able to have them in here as a reminder. So um, if you do have a chance to look upon them, look upon them in that light. Uh, and it, as we turn to Genesis chapter 12, let me just remind you of what it is we've been emphasizing throughout this series. Um, what we've been emphasizing is that uh, man messes up an awful lot. And we've seen that over and over again uh, throughout this series. We messed up from the very start. Like we, we couldn't even, and any of us who would judge Adam and Eve do so wrongly, um, we could not have, have, have faced the same temptation they did. We would have stripped the tree bare. In fact, we do still. Think about all the things that you were told. It's a bad idea for you to do this. It's a bad idea for you to watch this. It's a bad idea for you to read this. It's a bad idea for you to go on the site, and you do. And you discover, oh yeah, that really was a bad idea after all. But now you can't, you can't roll it back. As some friends of mine say when I send them things, I can't unsee that, whatever that is. And so, um, and so it's, it's something that we continue to do. And then as the story moves along, we see very quickly that, that um, even within families, there is strife. There is competition that leads to bloodshed. There's competition that would lead one to destroy the other in some way, shape, or form. And some of you have experienced this. You haven't been killed because you're here, uh, but you have had people assassinate your character and, and, and tear you down and not build you up in ways that they could and should. We have participated in this sin as well. And then there's the mingling of families that ought not mingle, uh, folks we ought not unite with. Many of us have done the same. Please don't look to your right or your left to confirm this, but stay straight ahead. Uh, it does happen. We have done it. We have put ourselves in position and in relationships of all kinds that we shouldn't. We have found ourselves unequally yoked at various levels. It's not just at the marriage and family level, is it? It's also in the friends that, and the company we choose to keep. It's in the businesses we choose to get involved with. It's in the various things that we do. So we know the sin of Genesis 6 all too well, don't we? And we too, just like those who built the Tower at Babel, have sought to make a name for ourselves. And you may say, I haven't ever built a ziggurat in my life. That story doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with you, actually, because you have built many other things in order to show your glory as greater than God's. So we know the sin of Genesis 11 all too well, don't we? But better that we would know also in every single one of those stories the redemptive faithfulness of the Lord our God who refuses to let his people go, who continues every single circumstance to condescend, to come personally. That's what's so beautiful about the Lord our God and is very different than every other God you could read about. None of them that I, just running through my head of world religion, just real quick, are personal like the Lord our God. None of them would come personally to say, you are blameless. As you'll hear next week, after Abram leaves, what we're going to see, the covenant in ruins. The greatest ruins any man could ever leave it in. And God's first words to him are, Abram, I am your shield and defender. Walk before me and be blameless. And so what we see is a God who is far more persistent than the sin that crouches at our door and dogs us at every step and seems to be incredibly persistent. God is more persistent still. This is the heart of Advent. This is really why we do Advent a disservice by saying it's only this time of year. Advent really is the entirety of our Christian existence. We are between the times we are waiting for the return of Christ. The kingdom is not yet full, right? Hebrews chapter 2 says Christ reigns, though it doesn't look like it in full just yet. And so we are an Advent people year-round. 
There's a great video. Uh, this guy, he was a homeschooler, and the name of the video series is Blimey Cow. And he talks about the different types of people at Christmas. And one of the, the people that he talks about is the well-actually person, right? Well, actually, Jesus was probably born in April, so we're, the birthday's off. It's wrong. Well, actually, there were probably like eight or nine or ten wise men, not just three. Your nativities are wrong. Uh, and so I, I just want you to hear, if you're the well-actually person you're visiting with us this morning or you've been with us for a long time, uh, we get it. De- De- December 25th is not Jesus' actual birthday, but it is the time at which the world is willing at least to hear. We will leverage that. We will take it. Thank you very much that the Lord is sovereign and grants us a hearing at least twice a year. Easter's coming. And so, <laughs> so let's use it, Right? Um, Let us use this time, and this is what we're being called to in the Abrahamic covenant, is that we are being called, and this is what we'll learn this morning, to participate, and that's critical. And I want to make it really, really clear this morning. There is not one of you in here, not one, young or old, who has not been called to participate, who has not been given a gift in the Holy Spirit to use for the sake of the glory of Christ. There's not one of you in here who does not bear the image of God. There's not one of you in here who is beyond saving to be transformed into the image of Christ. There's not one of you in here who is not called to participate in this in some way, shape, or form based on how you're gifted. Again, we the church have done you a disservice in a sense of kind of narrowing what that looks like to only the things that are exciting, to only the things that are praiseworthy, to only the things that can be celebrated and put on, on Facebook and put on, in a video and can be put in a letter and, and can, instead of the long obedience in the same direction that many of you are engaged in. Too often the church has made it all about kind of the extrovert gifts, right? The sharing, the willingness to go knock on doors and all these kinds of things. And that's not all there is. But let me also not let you completely off the hook. There is no way for people to get Jesus out of just your kindness. At some point, you have to tell the story. At some point, you have to share the gospel. It doesn't just come natural. You don't get it looking at a tree. You don't get it just being nice to somebody. That helps, right? That paves the way. Relationship's important. But we all, all have been gifted. The question is, are we using it? So my first question for you is, what redemptive work has God invited you into this Advent season? Let me say it again. If you're a Christian, there is not one single one of you that God has not invited into his redemptive work this Advent season. And here's the great thing about God. He's incredibly diverse and unique and willing to leverage it even when it looks like nothing's going on. There's a myriad of ways in which this can be true. The question is, are you aware of it? Are you, are you even asking, give me the eyes to see, Lord, where you are inviting me into the redemptive work this Advent season, 2018, not 2017, not 2016, not 2015, not even 2019, 2018. And you may say, but man, I'm, I, I still got to buy Christmas gifts. I, I understand that. I don't buy any, so I, it just makes it easy for me. And you may think, Grinch? No, I have an awesome wife who is so much better at that stuff than I am and is willing to take care of those things. But I, I'm horrible. I actually surprised her this year. I uh, had somebody make some furniture for her. Uh, Bobby Dixon, I don't know if he's here this morning, but did an amazing job. She was super surprised and loved it. Um, and so that'll buy me five or six years of not doing so hot. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but the point is, the point is, Uh, That even in that, even in your harriedness, I'm not saying don't go buy gifts, but how can it be redemptive? Because guess what? What are these days of retail? In fact, what's the new name that they gave the Saturday before Christmas? It's actually called Panic Saturday, (laughs) which is super is a lot better. I like your spin on it a whole lot better. That's a lot nicer. Panic Saturday, right? And so who's worked retail in here during Christmas? How many of you realize the depravity, the depths of the depravity of man because you've worked retail during Christmas? It is unbelievable. Um, Yeah, uh, I've quit many a job retailing during the Christmas season. And so here's the thing. So for those of you who are going, 
be kind to those people. Do you understand that even, even some little bit of kindness, some little bit of encouragement to them who are having to work on panic Saturday and frenzied Sunday and God knows what Monday uh, before Christmas, that, that you can be gracious to them in such a way that it actually brings a breath of life a bit? Right? That, does that make them know who Jesus is? Because you said, Merry Christmas, I hope you don't die. No, it doesn't. But, there, but there, are there ways in which you may be more attuned to what they have going on and speak a word of encouragement, speak something over them that would be a blessing to them straight from Scripture itself? And so, so this is where we begin to cultivate the eyes to see and the ears to hear. How do we love our neighbors during this season? Who knows what they're going through? Who knows how this Christmas may be the hardest for them yet? And so how can we, uh, as God's people, leverage what we have right where we are, beginning in the moment that has been granted to us, not, again, here's the good news, your failures to this point do not, cannot, will not ever have the final say if Christ is in you. That is good news. Now, does that give you the license to go and sin boldly? No, it doesn't. In fact, what it should do is set you free to worship and live in such a way that Christ's righteousness is evident in you. Amen? And so that's good news to us. That means it doesn't all land on us. It is God who will accomplish what he started, but we lovingly have been invited to participate so that when we get to the new heavens, new earth, we get to celebrate and enjoy the good gifts that have been forged between the now and the not yet in silver and gold and other precious stones. How you live matters. Remember, we saw that in Peter, right? Remember 2 Peter 3, it says that God tarries not because he, he's bored or not because he's lost the narrative himself. He tarries because he wants the family to get bigger. It is a purposeful patience, and waiting. And then Peter says those words, what kind of people ought we to be in the in-between? Remember, he talks all about how righteousness and, and blamelessness and how we live matters in the in-between, especially to those who might join our family. And so what we see is the beginning of that story, the calling of family. A family that will transcend nation and tongue and, and birthright and all of those things. We see here the promise of Revelation 7 fulfilled. We see the promise that every tongue, tribe, and nation would be part of this kingdom that is coming. Does that matter to us in America as we still, still are convulsing under the weight of racism and classism, and ageism, and sexism, and every ism that we could contemplate under the sun. It is our Bible. And so as we turn to this text, don't forget Babel, that the ashes, the scattering of Babel, was not the end of the story. That there is actually one that the Lord is going to call from that group of people who will participate as the father of all things changing. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is Abram's call and the blessing and restoring of God's scattered people. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If we were to back up it to the end of Genesis 11, we would find out that um, Abram is from the land of Ur, which is the land of the Chaldeans, which, is which becomes Babylon. It was the plain of Shinar, essentially. So he is from that group of people who were scattered. And the Lord is calling one out of that scattered group to bring back together all things that have been broken apart. Now, is he the promised son? No, it states very clearly that, it, that, that he himself will not be the promised one. It will come through his lineage. That's why we read Matthew 1, because Matthew calls him the son of Abraham, which is not in Luke's genealogy, because Luke takes it back to Adam. 
And, and again, that the, the people who are, well, actually, well, actually, the Bible has got it all messed up because the, the genealogies don't fit. Well, genealogies were never intended to be science, number one. And two, they had two different purposes because there were two different parental units being mentioned. One is Mary, the other is Joseph. You say, well, actually, Jesus wasn't born of Joseph. Well, in Abraham, it's different, right? Changes things. It's not about progeny. It's about righteousness, and he is the righteous son. And so what we see is the birth of the promise continuing and growing larger. This is becoming a larger covenant. And what you need to know about Abram is that he is 75 at the time he's called, and his wife is barren. How, how did the Jews view barrenness? It's a, something was wrong. You had done something wrong for you to not be able to produce children. And by the way, it wasn't just the Jews. It was every culture at that time viewed barrenness the same way. For you to not be able to produce children meant that your name, your lineage could not continue. And so he's also being called to leave behind every ounce of security that he would have had in that time. For him to leave his family and to forsake the land that was his, where else was he going to get it from? Who was going to give it to him for him to just strike off into the wilds? you got to understand, people would have been hostile to Abram just kind of strolling up being like, well, I claim this plot right here. This isn't the Wild West. This isn't gold mining. And so he's being asked to step out in a measure of faith that we, because of Christ, could never comprehend. Don't ever think that you can be like, don't ever say or, or suggest, be like Abram. No, you can't do that. In fact, that would be to go back beyond where Christ is, and that's not a good thing. We've got the fuller revelation on this side. We don't have to be Abram. We don't have to leave all we know because what we've been given in Christ and what the Holy Spirit allows us to know of him in and through his work. And so Abram does this not just for himself. The promise is for us also who will come after. And notice what God says. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Notice the contrast in what we saw in Babel. They were trying to make their own name great. Your name is only great when God makes it great. Right? I mean, yes, we know many names throughout history that we could claim these men are great. But actually they're not, none of them. All are flawed. All were limited. All lie in the grave. Only that which God calls into being through resurrection can, can, can last and matters of any great consequence. And so here, Abram is told, I will make your name great and, and I will bless you. Now, it's important. A lot of times we don't understand that Old Testament term uh, to be blessed, right? Psalm 1 is really helpful to us in, in helping us to understand what it means to be blessed. We tend to jump straight to the material. We're American after all. We're Western after all. Uh, but to be blessed actually was to have the presence of God. To be blessed was actually to have the righteousness of God granted to you in his favor, which is why Paul can say at the end of 2 Corinthians that he had learned to be satisfied in all circumstances. He's writing this from prison. He will not see the light of day more than likely at the time he's saying these things. And so he recognizes that it is not your material circumstance. Many of you have been through things that you say, I would never go back and do that again. However, what it did do was help me to learn more deeply the presence of the Lord. Take heart, those of you who sit in darkness, because it is as the light to the Lord, and he dwells with you, as the psalmist tells us. And this will not always be. At some point, he's going to say to you who sit in darkness, come out. And so to Abram, he says, I'm going to bless you with my presence, and that's not just for you. So Abram couldn't in a million years think more highly of himself. He was granted a purpose. That purpose is to be a blessing to all the other nations. 
This is a precursor to what we hear in Exodus 19 when God says to the people of Israel that he put them in the promised land so that they would be a priesthood to all the nations. Remember what Peter told us we are. What are we? A priesthood to all the nations in Christ. And so the same purpose that Abram is given Well, we are not Abram, we're not a patriarchal father, covenant father. What we are is God's people in Abram's name, Abraham, further on. And what we are called to be and do is a blessing to the nations. And he makes it very clear that he will ensure that this makes it all the way to the end, that those who try to curse Abram, meaning, so cursing in this case, means to destroy completely, to blot out. Not just say a bad word about. This is hostility on the order that we saw between Jacob and Esau. Remember what we talked about in Malachi. How Esau, the Edomites, were constantly attacking God's people, trying to blot them out, blot them off the face of the planet. It's interesting for those of you who read the book, um, Waiting for Snow in Havana. Uh, the people who live in Cuba now, who are native Cubans, are not the original people who lived there. I can't even pronounce the name, but the original people who lived there were blotted off the face of the earth by those, the conquistadors and others who came through to take that island for themselves. We know not who that people were at all. And so in, in, in this case, what God is saying is, you, the line the lineage, the blessing will never end. You have my word on it, I promise you. And we've already seen that over and over and over again, God's faithfulness, God's goodness. And this doesn't mean that we can invoke this as we choose. We don't get to decide who our enemies are and aren't. Remember what Christ calls for us to do. What are we to do to our enemies? What does Paul tell us we are to do to our enemies, supposed? And oftentimes, the enemy is actually, if we think about it, us. Who's, who actually has the biggest impact on your worship of God? You do. Who actually is the one limiting your ability to grow in your knowledge of God? You are. You are the biggest enemy, if you really think about it. And so God is gracious to his enemy. Think about Ephesians 2, while we were still yet enemies, he saved us, but God in his grace. In continuing this, in this promise, this Abrahamic promise. And so what we see here is the beginning of of the, the mission of God, and the mission of God's always been for him to be with his people. That's the story. That's why he condescends. Notice every single time when Adam and Eve sin, who comes looking for them? God does. Who fashions their clothing better than the fig leaves they had made for themselves? God does, by his own hand. Who comes to Cain personally when he was in trouble, when he, before he kills Abel? Remember the personal exchange that God had with him and said, listen, sin is crouching at your door. You can make this right. Personally, God spoke to him. And personally, God cursed him. Who is it that comes to Noah to tell him of what his purpose is for the recreation of the world after the flood? God does. Who personally comes to Babel to see what little work these men had created? God does. And who speaks with Abram face to face? God does. God, again and again, condescends. You may say, well, God don't ever talk to me face to face. Well, you'd probably freak out and your hair would turn white and your eyebrows would fall off or something. I mean, it's just, it's probably best that we have a mediator at this point. But, but God does, in fact, interject in our lives, right? And, he, and it's not always in the way that we would decide. We don't get to decide how it goes. And understand, these are big moments in redemptive history. Most of what we have going on are not big moments in redemptive history for the sake of the whole of the people of God. And yet, he does personally engage us, doesn't he? There are times when it's very evident that it is God's hand that brings something to us. And there's times, you know, we're so post-enlightenment that we're like, I don't want to over-spiritualize anything. Well, so we spiritualize nothing. Right? 
And so we got to be careful that the pendulum doesn't swing too far for us and that we miss where God is condescending, working in and through us in the power of the Holy Spirit, whether it's a kind word in due season. Who's, whose mouth does that come from? God's mouth, even though the vessel may be your neighbor or your, your spouse or your children or someone else. Think about the times you read something in Scripture and it, it could not have been more perfect. It doesn't happen every day. There's times when it so speaks to where we are that it's profound. Think of God's ordering of things that we would hear on Spastic Sunday or whatever it is that we've got going on, whatever they're calling it now, that he would say to his people from Psalm 37, fret not. How many of you needed that word this morning? Just those, 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 those two words, fret not. God is so gracious to orchestrate that. I can tell you, I wasn't thinking that when I picked Psalm 37 some three, four months ago. But as we read it, I couldn't help but think, wow, that have been more perfect. The gift of God and his people that he still speaks in small ways, still small voice. He's still willing to condescend to us. Not only does he do it, Christ does it. Not only does Christ do it, the Holy Spirit does it. Listen to what Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, with Kathy J. Frederick says about this, he says, the call of God to Abram is a sneak preview for the rest of the Bible. It is the story of God bringing salvation to all tribes and nations through this holy nation, administered at first by the Mosaic Covenant and then by the Lord Jesus Christ through the New Covenant. It is very important that you understand you cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. I know there's a very famous person recently who seems to have castigated the Old Testament in some way, shape, or form. And, and I don't want to misrepresent his words. I'm not going to say his name, but, but I, it, it, just, it, it just boggles my imagination that, that we, we would throw out the thing that you can't understand the book of Revelation without it. You can't understand the Gospels without it. You, can't, you don't have a, a clue what's going on. There's no great commission without the Abrahamic covenant. Why would we throw it out? Yes, is it complicated? Have you ever considered your own life? Is it not complicated? Is it not a mix of paradoxes that you can't ever explain? That if I pressed you on certain things, you, like my children, would say, I don't know. Why'd you do that? Oh, I don't know. No idea. Just came to my mind, I did it. Set fire to that thing right in the middle of the house. Have no idea. I know it was a Christmas tree. I know it probably should have been done outside, but it looked... Whatever it may be, uh, we are complex, and our stories are incredibly complex. Why? Why would we want to give up the beauty, the glory, the, the, the passion of God for his people that is the Old Testament? I know many of you are thinking, everybody jumps immediately, but what about the Dinah incident? I have no idea. Someday I'm going to preach on it. I'm going to try to do the best I can with it. But I don't understand why they cut her up and sent her to twelve. It's weird. It's a weird story. But, but part of it I know is this. If God doesn't send Jesus and come back, this is what we are. Dinah incident after Dinah incident after Dinah incident that makes no sense whatsoever of life. Praise be to God, there's a story that causes us to go, I don't want to live like that. And so, what are some ways in which you are participating in those scattered among the nations hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ so its people could be blessed with eternal life in him? And if you, if you can't say anything to that question, I don't want you going home feeling bad. It's, it's Christmas, Okay. So, so make something for the new year. Don't get all twisted around the axle on this thing. But we all need to be participating in some way, shape, or form in making sure that the nation's here. Now, let me say something very clear. This is one of the great gifts that we have. I'm not saying that the, 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 in, the refugee stuff is not complex and that there's not ways in which infrastructure should not be considered and ways in which we could do better than what we're doing. However... One of the things that's happening is the nations are coming to us. And we have a real opportunity in that 
to share and be and live out the gospel in hospitality and in spirit and truth. And there's a whole bunch of people that we brought to this country that we, we've yet to really kind of engage and deal with on that issue ourselves. So we've got unfinished business all over the place. And so it's not that you've got to go somewhere. Uh, more than likely, it is near you and nearer than you think. All you got to do is ask, and the Lord will be happy to show you. Yes, you can go. I'd love for us to send more missionaries. That would be fantastic. I'd love to see us do mission trips. Many of you have asked about that. Uh, and I'm all for it, as soon as you plan it. My job is to preach and pray. <laughs> not, I'm not the cruise director on the cruise of your Christian life. Remember that now. Right? I'm not, it's not my job to set up shuffleboard in Scotland for you so you can go and share the gospel with one of the workers at the resort. Um, but, but I'd love for our church to do more of that. But before we do more of that, how do we become a more welcoming community right here? How do we, and this is part of, this is a quick plug for the Sunday school class coming at the end of January that Robbie's going to lead and I'll be a part of and others as well. How do we grow in our hospitality here such that people don't come in here and not at least feel welcomed in some way, shape, or form, no matter the scowl they wear as they come in, no matter what they got going on because you don't know why they scowl. You don't know what's going on in their heart. They could use a kind word. Um, I, I won't mention this person's name, but there's somebody who's a very dear part of our church. That the very first conversation I ever had with this person, I was, it was, I was pulling eye teeth. It was hard, right? I was like, hey, my name's Cameron. Yeah. And your name? Yeah. I gave him the name. Where are you from? Here. Okay, good talk. <laughs> they stuck around and, uh, and, and have become a critical part of our church and somebody we love dearly. And so, and I've had that conversation on a number of occasions. So just so you know, uh, when I was not, I didn't get paid to do this. The thing I hated the most was the banal church chatter. Just so you know, and I know you can, you, you know me, so yeah, it's fair. Like trying to do that whole thing was so awkward and weird to me. Um, it's one of the reasons I, 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 in every church I've worked the front door because I, I get it out of the way because nobody wants to stand outside and talk because you're blocking the door and it's cold today so people keep moving, right? So I'm not dumb. I know what I'm doing. Been doing it for years, right? Uh, but, but those conversations are critical and every one of us can participate. Every one of us can make this a more welcoming place. If you see somebody sitting off by themselves looking like they don't want anybody to bother them, pop their personal bubble and go over and talk to them, right? Run the risk. I'd rather people say, I hate that church. They're friendly. <laughs> than for us to have people who were hurting, who needed it the most, say, I was not welcome there. Only the people who got paid to do it said something to me, and that ain't enough. And so there's ways in which we can do this locally, but there's also the faith promise, which, we, um, which is the way in which that we pay for church plants and that we pay for campus ministries or support campus ministries and those who do mission work. So part of how we do this is also to, to give uh, above and beyond tithes uh, to make sure that this work goes on. In fact, one of the people that we support, um, I know that uh, Erica has a basket. If you want to send them some encouragement, they could use it. Uh, the stocks, and um, uh, they came out of this church. They were sent from this church. They're, they're near and dear to, to, to our church. Uh, the Mills were one of the, in, in Thailand, one of the first families that we supported as a church, um, and, uh, and I know some have actually gone over there on a mission trip to see them, and so these are folks that we know personally. We don't want to just support people we don't know. We want to be able to support people that, that we can have a relationship with and not just give a check, but pray for, know what's going on, receive their email newsletters, and, and engage in some way, shape, or form. Again, that's an area where our church can grow. And some of you have great administrative gifts. You'd be a behind-the-scenes type person who could plan and, and all that kind of stuff, but you don't, you don't want any credit. You don't want anybody to know. It's, you don't want to be part of anything else. 
We need you. Um, administration is something that, that uh, uh, not-for-profit organizations like ourselves often struggle with in so many ways. A lot of us are idea people and people people, and so a lot of things can fall through the cracks. And so you could be a great gift to us in any number of ways in helping with planning and, and things of that nature. And so um, I want to say that when you think of missions, it's not just over there. It begins... Remember how the book of Acts says it, it radiates from closest to furthest. Closest is not denied. In fact, closest can sometimes be the hardest. And so we want to be a people who are on mission with God, who continue the great commission, which is the fulfillment and fuller Abrahamic covenant in Christ. If you would turn back to the text and let us see... <clears throat> how Abram begins to do this as he pushes back the darkness and begins to advance God's kingdom. And I love this, how it just begins so simply. So Abram went. Would that be true of much of our righteousness and obedience? As the Lord had told him, even better. And notice this, he's already starting to grow the thing. He's like, and Lot went with him. Did you know? Don't miss that, right? We know that Lot's story gets complex at some point, right? But, but notice Abram doesn't just go alone. He grabs one of his family members and says, all right, you're coming too. We're going to go ahead and get this thing started. We'll begin nearest, hardest family. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Now notice what Abram's doing as he goes along. He's building altars to the Lord, right? So what is that doing? It's beginning to claim peace, by peace, the land that was promised to him. Now, don't get, don't get twisted and say, well, oh, okay, well, this, this, this proves that, you know, colonialization is a good thing. And, and no, this is a very unique circumstance. And the territory that we are now called to take back is the heart and the mind, not the dirt and the trees. And certainly not for our own leverage purposes, which was part of the ills of, of the way that man goes about claiming land and people and other things. And notice that the, <clears throat> the point of this is that all the nations would be blessed. Do you think that doesn't include Canaan? Remember that one of the sermons that got Jesus in the most trouble is when he said to the Jews that Isaiah 61 was being fulfilled in their hearing. This is Luke chapter 4, and he quotes that the widow at Zarephath had been preserved. you know where Zarephath is located, perchance? Canaan. A Canaanite was included. And he mentions Naaman the Syrian, who also was included in the kingdom. And remember how they reacted. The story will end here today. And Jesus does some kind of ninja thing where he gets out of the crowd, right? And passes through. It's uh, been a crazy thing to see. And he lives for another day because he will lay his life down. They won't take it from him. His time was not yet. And, and notice that there's also the, the, the Canaanite lady who is crying out to the Lord and pestering them for the healing of her daughter and says about the crumbs falling from the table that even the little dogs get to eat of the master's table. Remember Jesus' response? Get out of here, you Canaanite. Well, he says, greater faith has not been shown even in Israel. You understand. He heals her daughter. And you may say, well, what about all those that got destroyed? I'm grieved by that. 
It's a grievous story, and it grieved the heart of God because those people were in his image as well, but yet they sacrificed their children, and they were actually going to oppose the people of God since they would blot them from the face of the earth, not including any of them. I hate it, but it's why Jesus has to come back because we are still at war in so many ways. And so as Abram goes, he is essentially reclaiming the territory that had always been the Lord's but that the powers of darkness thought they had seized. And he starts at, a, at this tree of Moray. And what's fascinating about that is that was the key Canaanite spot to worship their gods. Notice God meets his man there and personally continues, tells him to continue. What a gift that the Lord our God can dwell in such places. There's an, an even more interesting story. You remember that story in Ezekiel where the, the, the chariot with all the wheels with the eyes right? That's another one that's kind of like, what in the world? Uh, But what that is, is the presence of the Lord is on the move. It departs from the temple. But if you know anything about the story of Ezekiel, where are the people going? They're going into exile. What does that mean about the presence of the Lord since it is on a chariot with wheels with eyes? He will be with his people. He will not depart from them ultimately, that he will be where they go, even though they won't necessarily see it in the way that they saw it before. He is always able to be there with his people, no matter how dark the circumstance, no matter how great their sin. Amen. That's true for us too. And so as Abraham is slowly but surely claiming this land, it is the beginning of the unfolding of the kingdom of God in a way that had already started at creation and was just con- and, it, and it was restarted after the flood, that recreation, and it continues through to this day. So what does this look like for us? Should you today go to Barnes and Noble and set up a little altar and make sure people know this is to the Lord our God, you frantic shoppers? And praise God we don't have to kill anything on it. That's an improvement. So take that to heart. No, that's not how we claim. Remember, the territory that that we are going after the hardened ground that we are interested in seeing transformed into a beautiful garden is the heart and the mind. It's not divorced from the body. That will change things outwardly as well, yes? That means our institutions will change because the people in them change. That means things begin to change because the hearts and the minds of the people who are engaged in those things are transformed. And it is like leaven from the inside out. Listen to what Derek Kidner says about this. He says, it was a foretaste of the things to come that this stronghold, meaning Canaan, of other gods, the Lord revealed his, it was in that stronghold that the Lord revealed his presence and allocated the land to his servant and received formal homage. So what are some ways in which you are engaging in pushing back the darkness in union with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to announce that God's kingdom has come? What are the things that you're participating in to see transformed so that, so that those areas of reconciliation do more than just a relationship but begin to take on the, the very image of God itself, right? So we're thinking bigger than just uh, the, the, the relational. Where are you pushing back on these things? How are you thinking as a Christian? Um, one, of the, one of the problems uh, that we have is that is that we, we sometimes cannot look any different than the world most of the rest of the week. In fact, sometimes even here, we don't look very different than the world attending any other event. In fact, we, we, we can look much less. We're much less excited, honestly, than the people who go to Tony Robbins' events. Now, he beats on a drum, and he does all kind of cool stuff that I don't do. I get it. He's got big teeth, big hands. I, I, that excites me, too. But, but think about it. Think of the lack of humility that we have for this, this eternal moment, this, this thin place where God said, what, what did God say about when people gather together in his name? Where is he? He's there. But he's, he's there in a different way than just, because again, you could be like, well, God, he's, um, he's like everywhere. So Whatever. He's with me when I'm, you know, doing, you know, I'm at the football game. I'm, doing, I'm somewhere else. That's not untrue, by the way. But this is unique. 
Not because it's Christ Community Church. There's a lot of churches in this community that are worshiping in, in a variety of creative ways that, that are beautiful and preach the gospel. And, and that's, that's an amazing thing that, because we don't have enough chairs for everybody in Cobb County. And so it just works out that missionally, it's better to have more than one church, as it turns out. And so, and so we ought to have a... And I'm not saying I want you to get crazy. I get it. Introverts, that whole nine. But, but think about it. Think about when a, a new movie comes out that's part of some series that you've read, or I don't know what's going on these days, but you know, the, it's like the part nine of whatever you've watched, the other eight parts. I mean, you get so excited. How many of you were just furious that Netflix canceled Daredevil without doing season four and wrote like a nasty letter to somebody anonymously? You cut it out and sent like a note, right? Like those kind of things just bought, and, and or when somebody, they make the movie from the book, they get it wrong. Like we get so upset about those kind of things, or we get super excited when they do. There's things that excite us that are not eternal. There's not. And yet the eternal stuff, man, we're struggling just to, just to be there for whatever, however many minutes I'm holding you or losing you. And so how do we, with greater humility, recognize the presence of the Lord? Well, first thing we've got to do is be humble enough to ask. Because we know we don't have the eyes to see. Not in and of ourselves. We just don't. We don't have the ears to hear. I don't care how much you read it. I don't care how many commentaries you read. I don't care if you memorize it in Greek and Hebrew. It will be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, a veil will lie over it unless the Holy Spirit allows you to know. So you are dependent no matter what you do. No matter what you've done. No matter what you will do. So how, how do we... Uh, grow in our humility as a community of people and recognize this and, and, and think about how it might affect our hospitality if we recognize this as different than just something you got to get through to check off to say you've done something. Think about how it would, it would change us if, if our greater concern was seeing where the Lord's at work and not just making sure we get out of here to beat whatever, of whatever denomination might beat us to whatever restaurant we're trying to get to. Or home, right? I've never seen a, personally, I've never seen a kid die because they didn't get their nap on time for the 157th time in a row. I'm not saying that's not, that's a, it's, it's a good thing. Structure's good. Don't hear me say that's a bad thing. But, but sometimes we're in too big of a hurry for things of lesser importance as if Christ doesn't hold all things together. And so, what do we learn from Genesis 12, 1 through 9? It teaches us that God calls us to participate in his redemptive mission in Christ, one, to restore what has been scattered. Man, what would that look like if we thought that was true? Do we even know what all has been scattered or being scattered in our culture, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our spheres of influence? And secondly, that we are to progressively push back the darkness where it is found, proclaiming the kingdom has come. Now, this is not triumphalistic, by the way. This is not in any way, shape, or form us taking things over. We've done that a couple times over and just didn't work out so hot. And so when we push back the darkness, it is in the power of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it looks nothing like what we would call triumph. It looks a whole lot like defeat. I don't always know what that means. It's situational. But are we even asking for where the Lord would have us to do these things specifically and therefore participate in his redemptive mission that is declared yet again in the Abrahamic covenant? If you notice the Abrahamic covenant, it's just what was said in Genesis 1 to Adam and Eve restated. Be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion of this land. For us, be fruitful, multiply, Share the gospel, make disciples. People who can think biblically and act biblically in a way that glorifies God in the world, baptizing them in, in, in his name, the fullness of the Trinitarian name, and teaching them everything that the Bible has to offer on the various issues. And oh, by the way, Jesus has dominion and he is with us always to the end of the age.
So listen to what Sidney Gradanus says about this. He says, as seed of the woman, reclaiming the land for the Lord, Abram foreshadows Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who restores true worship of God, who sends out his disciples to make disciples of all nations, thus reclaiming the whole world for the Lord. Moreover, as God made Abram's name great, so God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name. And amen and amen. That is what this season and the whole of our lives is about. Continue to cultivate that. Don't let the tyranny of the urgent rob you of your joy. I love uh, the, the uh, Joy to the World. Did you notice that Joy to the World really is an eschatological song? It's not, it's not proclaiming what happened. It's it proclaimed what is happening and will happen. That as far as the curse is found, which is every riven part of your being, the light of the gospel will find its way there and transform it and make all things new. Amen? Celebrate that. We have one more uh, in the Advent series. Robbie will preach next week from Genesis 17. Uh, and so um, it is not yet over. We have not yet finished looking forward. And so uh, I do um, wish you all a Merry Christmas uh, in this regard and in the best regard of what that means, which is that Christ would be your joy and that Christ would be your fullness. Amen? I'm going to pray. We have one more song. Uh, and then I'll do a few announcements in the benediction. Father, thank you of where the story begins, but more importantly, thank you for where it ends. That it is a good, good end. That when Christ returns, he's going to make all things new. That we won't have to push back the darkness. The darkness will be done away with. And that no more will there be tears or sorrow. No more will there be brokenness or division or cursing. No more will we be at enmity and war with one another, with the systems of the world, with the institutions of the world, with ourselves, with creation itself, with you. God, thank you that eternal peace is made in Christ and in Christ alone through your grace alone, and that we by faith alone are able to attain to that in the power of the Holy Spirit who calls us, who equips us, who gifts us. May we be a people who join in your work, first and foremost by being a hospitable place for people to come who don't know you or are confused about you or think they don't want to know you based on their experience with Christians. May we be a welcoming place that is true to you and true to them. In Christ's name, amen.